Well, friends, we have another very important show for you today. We're going to be talking with Dr. Heather Harding, who is the executive director of the Campaign of Our Shared Future. At that job, she is responsible for the overall health, sustainability, and success of that campaign. Throughout her career, Heather has focused on the intersection between access to high-quality education and racial equality. She knows a lot about the technical aspects of teaching and learning. She has studied it for years and has actually led multiple efforts to get us better schools with better teachers and better curriculum. She's really thought a lot about the process of educating young people. But today, we're going to talk to her more about the politics that are involved in the recent culture wars and how they are impacting educators and other folks who are of you know really good hearts and good backgrounds but are being attacked by the the folks that are pushing a campaign of just kind of distrust for education and educators. Heather's a perfect person to talk to about this, so we hope that you enjoy this show. So, Dr. Harding better known as Heather to me, but we will start out with Dr. Harding. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really have been looking forward to this conversation with you because I think you hold so much of the information that we need around where are we going with the big fight nationally to have a multiracial democracy and have an education system also that supports a multiracial democracy that is pluralistic, that actually can fit everybody in it. You're one of the people that actually was the first people to key me into like Heather McGee's stuff, the book she wrote, The Sum of Us. I'd heard that from you before anyone else. And that whole kind of like drain the pool thing. Well, I just want to be very honest with you in the beginning. I was like, what is this stuff that Heather's having me look at? This all sounds too happy and too kind of like all togetherness. And boy, now have I changed. <laughs> Come over to the dark side or the light side. The light side, just in this one way, the drain the pool philosophy that she talks about in there was a very good analogy for me. It fits so many things. And your organization, the Campaign for Our Shared Future, actually I think is more hopeful and aspirational about here are the pragmatic things we can do to push forward to a better goal for all of us to aspire to. Sometimes that gets too fluffy. And then sometimes, you know, here you guys come through with, no, here's actual pieces of legislation that we should make it real and think about, you know, like how these things impact us. So anyways, I've been very excited to have you here. Number one, because you're my most optimistic person that I know about these things, <laughs> but you're also deeply in the work. You're actually doing the work work. Can I start with just a question for you? If we would have talked six months ago or a year ago, I would have been on very high alert thinking to myself, oh my God, the sky is falling. Where are we now in the seriousness of the, the national campaign towards, you know, holding the line on equity in schools, holding the line on kind of uh, diversity and inclusion and all these things that make us a good country? Where are we now in the fight? Oh, I appreciate the question, Chris. We're in the same place. It might feel <laughs> like things have gotten better because the media has been better about telling the real story of these grass tops efforts and also recognizing that there is pushback on the ground. But we're in the same place. I mean, there were 20 plus states that passed some version of this legislation. There are still proposals, versions of the legislation in different iterations. And so the local school board is essentially the place where the battle will be won, right? All of the things that happened last year and that have quieted down because the rest of the country is also going bananas, 
and polarization continues, they're still in effect. And that leaves educators under a cloud of really like not knowing what to do, confusion, fear, et cetera. So like, I do think there's not as much rhetoric or as many media stories about people yelling at each other. And yet I talk to here at the campaign, educators, libraries, system leaders who are, they don't know what to do and they fear for their jobs. And often what the law is telling them they can do is in conflict with their professional judgment. And I, I just said to somebody, I guess I'm just going to be chicken little for a little while. The sky is falling. Move your head. Do you have the sense that maybe we are getting fatigued about the story to the point where it does feel like it's it's getting better just because maybe we're ignoring it more now? <laughs> it's like we're tuning it out, which isn't the proper response, right? Yeah. But do you think maybe it's some of it's just fatigue with the story? Well, so I think that reasonable people really do want to be optimistic. And as you said, I I am an optimist. I really do think this is solvable, but I think it leads some reasonable people to focus on the minutia. So I was in a conversation last month that settled on, well, are these books really being banned, right? This is a common refrain. These books are challenged. They, They might be off the shelf for a couple of weeks and they're back and you know, it's really dishonest to say that there are book bans uh, all over the country. And my contention is that that's an interesting intellectual conversation to have. If you are not assigning children books tomorrow, <laughs> or if you're not running a school library where a book is off the shelf for a few weeks, and maybe it makes it back and maybe it doesn't. So I think like, yes, it is true. There are processes, by the way, processes that were in existence before these laws challenge these titles, for parental input and families and for professionals to come together. And so we're focused on like the tiny minutiae as opposed to like the real threat is that this political game is getting in the way of families and educators working together to solve problems at a time where there are a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Are there stories that we could tell that make it real for people about what this means for educators and students and parents who are not being heard? We hear from the loudmouths. We hear from kind of like the people that make the most noise and are driving most of the division. But are there stories that we can tell that makes this more real for people listening? Yeah, there are several stories in the press that talk about how authors of diverse titles, so books that tackle LGBTQ issues or feature people of color that are, to me, heartbreaking and not just rob communities of color or LGBTQ communities, but white communities and cisgender communities as well, right? So the idea that you would take race out of the Rosa Parks story is not just a detriment to Black people, right? Like, if I'm a white person, I want to have access to the fact that, like, we've gotten better. So that's really important. I heard a story, I mediated a panel a couple weeks ago, the very controversial second band book, All Boys Aren't Blue, author talk about how it, it wasn't just that they were banning the idea of his existence, but that they were taking his text and criminalizing it. So introducing anyone who shared the text could have the sheriff's office show up on their door, you know, it, that that's trauma. That That's like real trauma. And 
He's an author who stands on his beliefs about the importance of the story and also in an age-appropriate way talks about why this needs to be accessible. But you can imagine that the same, like teachers who are teaching third grade are equally concerned about books about Ruby Bridges. I think that's like, whoa, ah, what is going on? We are seeing lots of teachers who are being fired or challenged. And I do wonder about the young people who might want to come into the profession, like who's going to, we know we don't pay them enough. We talk a lot about that. We know we don't train and support them enough. And now we want them to come in and they're worried that if they choose the wrong book, that they'll get fired or targeted. So I think those kind of stories, but one story that I don't like have enough examples for, but that I am keeping my eye open is there's an interesting way the face of harm in these movements centers the experience of white children. That is something that our, our, our entire nation can relate to. We don't want to see white children crying in a privilege line, which was an early example in these fights. But it's odd to me that people don't understand how important it is for children who have LGBTQ families, children who are grappling with their sexuality or their gender identity, Black children, brown children, Asian children who have never encountered a book that has a family or a character like theirs until fifth grade, those are harms. And people have been fighting against those harms for decades, hundreds of years, and we can't excuse that. And that's what's happening after, you know, a couple of decades of improvement where you actually saw, I mean, you and I, now we're the old people, Chris, like, you know, we're middle-aged. Well, speak for yourself, but okay. <laughs> I'm speaking for you too. I, I actually do remember the books that I grew up with that were like, oh my God, there are people like me in this book. I remember them in my elementary school and they, they were few and far between and they were generally introduced by a black teacher. I had my first black teacher in second grade. And she, she and my third and fourth grade teachers were like masterful at bringing in literature and examples and black history to the curriculum so that I was, I felt really lucky in comparison to my other peers. But like my kids who are school age, they are middle and high school. They've never experienced a K-12 that didn't have representations. So that stuff is important to protect and they're white friends too. Like they have access to like, it's no, it's very normalized. And that's where I think the focus on like a multiracial democracy is so important to remember that this is not, I'm taking something away from you so I can give it to somebody else. This is for all of us. So it's important to protect. I mean, you just said a couple of things there that are ringing out true for me and starting to resonate more and more. One, there's so many families that are like mine. My my family is a multiracial family, but they're, you know, my family is multiracially ethnic and black, right? So we're not one thing, but we're not white necessarily. And there's so many families, like when we think about people of color, we often gravitate towards the urban or towards the, you know, the poor. And in actuality, our people of color exist in many different ways and shapes as families. And we're not represented in these national kind of discussions around parenthetical 
parents' rights, right? When we talk about parents' rights, what that really is code for right now is white suburban moms who don't want their white children who are fastly becoming the minorities in public schools to encounter ideas that retrain them to think differently than their parents want them to think, right? That's what the parents' right movement is right now. What the parents' right movement could be would be all of us, like what we all want in schools. But right now, there are many states I've mentioned this again and again and again here. So people who've listened to me over time are probably sick of hearing it, but I could move to a state with my family now where specifically my kids couldn't read things that I think are affirming specifically for them. Whereas that's not the way the law is coming down for white families, right? It's affirming their belief to never encounter an idea that they don't want. And I just wonder, you know, I'm going to ask you kind of more of a provocative question in that you have way more patience for seeing all sides of these things than I do. Like you've got like a ridiculous amounts of just like a tiring amount of patience for engaging across the lines of things. I don't know how you do it because it seems like even if I was a, a conservative person who agreed with the bans and agreed with the removal of certain books, that the part of me that is about the constitution and about conservative values around uh, free speech and all of that stuff would stop me from doing the really gross thing, which is using my political and social power to shut other people up, just to take away from them even the right to read something. It feels like on the conservative side, and you've had more, you've had bipartisan type of work that you have done. So you've gotten to see that other side. Do you see the reasonable people on that side of the fence? And what is their kind of claim to this discussion right now? The reasonable uh, Republicans and conservatives and folks on that side? So we're nonpartisan, which is different than bipartisan. But I do, t- we talk to a lot of parents and uh, we talk to a lot of families. And in, in one sense, this is about creating more space for parents to have different value sets. So who's the arbiter of that? It should be educators. And there's a claim that educators are indoctrinating or that they are dangerous, that they have been they're woke and they're doing the wrong thing. But what we find is that educators are actually trying to mediate and manage. And so the problem with the legislation and the policy is that it doesn't allow them to use their professional judgment in consultation with families. And if so, it's families that are taking over school boards or the debate from a minority perspective. The view that I want for my young person is the view that we should legislate in the local school board or at the state level. And and that's not very American. Like I've been talking a lot in the last month also about we have to go back to our tenets of tolerance, which is the floor, not the ceiling. So that's something that's really important. And I think like a parent's rights frame or a family's first frame is really important. And I talk to a lot of people who have solid grounds for challenging text on age appropriateness and also on values. And I have not found a case yet where the previous or the current policy didn't allow them ways to protect their child or to align. And so I keep saying, you know, there's something else going on here. This is not actually about the thing that folks are purporting it's about. And we do encounter uh, moderate, we encounter conservatives, we encounter liberals and progressives who would like nothing better than to support educators in doing the work and to have that same support 
return to families. You know, it feels like we are seeing the death of expertise, the death of professionalism, the death of smart people running our oh, society. Makes me so and sad. Being taken like, over this is our whole like, career, Chris. <laughs> right. No, I mean, you know, and, you know, I introduced you at the top of this, uh, Dr. Heather Harding, you don't usually go by doctor, but in my life, there have been, uh, I've been fortunate enough when I've been deeply ignorant about things to have in my network, more and more people over years, over time has gone on, who really do have expertise. They really do know what they're talking about. And these people are never the politicians. They're never the policymakers. They're never the media. They're never the journalists. With the exception of, you know, people like Soledad O'Brien and others who spent enough time covering these stories that they become very educated about them. But, you know, I've gotten to back and forth with people about like, well, do you think kids should be reading such and such? It'll be about a very specific book. Usually it's gender queer or something like that book. And I'll say like, I don't want to be the person who determines that for everybody. Like I actually, well, so you trust the librarian to do that. And I'm like, well, you know, the librarians have this thing called library science. They have rules, they have criteria, they have rubrics, they have things that they've all been trained in and you don't. So what I would like is for all of us to step out of that when we don't have the expertise to do it. But it feels like the campaign is actually to take away from us any trust in those people the people that have expertise. I was just on Friday morning, I was at the American Association of School Librarians. I mean, these are people who walk around with bags of books, who have t-shirts with their favorite authors. Like they are steeped in knowledge and expertise. They are specialists. They love literature. Like every single one of them that walked up to me or that I met in the hallway told me a story about a child that they had spent time with in the last week in the library, helping them select a text. And they're afraid for their jobs. They, you know, they're either making the decision to speak out and be attacked or they're begging for advocates to support them. And I think that's a crisis point. And that's why I say like six months ago it was bad, like because you could see it all over the TV. Now it's bad because when you talk to everyday folks who are working in schools, they're frightened or they're being turned into advocates because that's the only way they can just do their jobs. So we are losing this ground. I think the last time I talked to you, people think 2023 isn't a very big political year, but it's almost 30,000 school board races that will get decided, seats will get decided. Uh, in November, there'll be a big tranche to them. So anybody listening to your podcast, like go find out when your school board race is, who's running, which ones are running authentically, and which ones might be part of what we call hate slates who are trying to shut this thing down for everyday parents and families. Like that is, there's a place to act in this. And tell somebody the story of when your educator helped you and your child solve for a problem and vice versa, because we do have to remind ourselves that the vast majority of young people are in public schools and that you have access to those educators and you need to be working with them and they should be working with you. So I do like there is another parents movement that's been afoot that you are well aware of for a long time of parents wanting more access to schools and teachers and wanting their wishes honored. And that's part of the work that we have to do. But we can't do it under these politics that we got going on right now. that are like using guerrilla tactics that are shutting down choice, that are punishing people for doing the job that we pay them to do. Like all those things are 
really bad outcomes. So this is another plug for expertise and professionalism. When you talk about the 30,000 seats that are going to be filled, I would really appreciate if those 30,000 seats were filled by people that have a couple of things going on. Number one, they have a reason to be there in terms of what they bring to the table. They have an expertise of some sort. Districts need school board members that understand finances, that understand legality, that understand educational history, that understand some to some extent curriculum and pedagogy in some way, shape, or form. It would be great to have 30,000 seats filled with people who haven't been prepared by hate slate merchants, people who um, are creating training programs all across the country to train really incompetent, underqualified, but highly opinionated people. There are two things that make a recipe for disaster in a school board member. A lot of opinion and very little knowledge, right? Ignorance and, and self-confidence is just such a disaster for school board members. And I'm saying this as a former school board member. What I remember about the job was it didn't matter what I thought many times. What I thought wasn't really why I was there. What it, it may have been part of it, but part of being a school board member is you are governing a system for everybody, not just for you or the people that look like you or think like you. So in one day, I might be meeting with the Hmong community, and another day, I might be meeting with the Somali community. And, you know, I could keep going on. Every day of the week, you're hearing from people from different backgrounds. And your job as a fair governor is to be a good steward of democracy, right? Like, So this idea that we would bring a whole bunch of very opinionated, very political people into a nonpartisan role, the school board role, is that's supposed to be a nonpartisan race, right? There's a push in some places to make it a partisan yes. race. Mm -hmm. That's scary. <laughs> I just mm -hmm. want to say, because this is all of our children, it's all of our kids. So anyways, after that long kind of setup, what do you think we should be doing to develop infrastructure and systems that create pipelines of people, good people who are qualified to make it safe for them to run for school board? Because no one needs that in their life if they're not going to be supported, right? Like competent people don't need that, Heather. <laughs> this is your, I mean, this is your wheelhouse because I know you're a former school board member and I know you served with respect and distinction. At the campaign, we are endorsing equity-focused candidates. We have a survey that we did. We were looking for folks who had many of the elements that you laid out. I was like, Chris, did I send you my toolkit and said, like, <laughs> did I pay you? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, either way, I agree with you that there's a, a certain alignment that you're looking for. And it really is taking on the responsibility of educating all kids, not just a certain sect. So that's really important to us at the campaign. And we want to support candidates to do that work. We partner with a couple of new nonprofits in this space, school board, school and school board partners who do the kind of pipeline through the governance and support members and getting the kind of knowledge they need. There are a couple other projects. One is associated with CCSSO. I can't remember the name right now that are working on training modules from a more central like this is just about like nuts and bolts, having technical knowledge to do the job. But I think we're all going to have to pay a little bit more attention to this space. It is a under-resourced space. It is not something, you know, that folks have spent a lot of time on. And anytime you've got an ecosystem that is just focused on pipeline, I think pipeline is important, but pipeline is a political activity more than the technical activity that you and I would be interested in, right? Like you want people, pedagogy, do how many school board members across the country even know what that word is, right? Like I think... We have to do better 
around supporting them once they're in the seats. These are largely unpaid roles, like all of the demands around that. But they're they are important. I mean, even you, you cannot compare this country's school boards to mayorally controlled or appointed school boards in Boston or Oakland or other places. Like it is true that yes, there are some rarefied models where you have access to professional class or there's a stipend uh, attached. Most folks are just running on their own steam and their own support and preparation. And so this is a place where membership associations would be helpful. I don't know if that's going to emerge. There's a lot of interest now (laughs) in people doing it. I think we're all going to have to pull together. We've got to solve the political problem before it's safe for lots of people to do it. But there are many citizens who can do it with a greater deal of authenticity than we're seeing right now in terms of people running. It feels like we need structures in place, vetting structures. It's possible that maybe mayors should spend a little bit more time caring about who's going to get elected to their city's school board. Because, you know, if you are a mayor and you're talking all over the place about how you're a world-class city and you're so great and everything, you might want to make sure that your schools are run by people that understand schooling in some way, shape, or form, right? So it could be like the mayor's forum on school board candidates that happens before the school board race, right? So that the city, so city folk have an idea of, you know, if the mayor convenes it, it gives it credibility, right? And the press will pay attention. And then you make people fill out questionnaires when they're running. Yeah deep questionnaires, right? That really give, I would love it if uh, states would do a better job. Um, There is some state mandated training. Once you win, you go through some state mandated training. I would love it for states to to stiffen what that training is supposed to be. Yeah. And then somebody has to provide that training. I think we don't have that many providers right now, but they are several who are emerging. Mm. If I had to ask you a very straight question about who do you think is winning this war? Who's winning this battle? We're talking about culture wars, and usually someone's either winning or losing a war. Who do you think is winning right now, the culture wars? You know, my first response is I think the culture wars are a bit manufactured. So Mm -hmm. it's hard for Mm -hmm. me to think about somebody winning or not. It feels generational. So when we look at actual polls, our baby boomers are on the side of like, it's gone too far, pendulum swinging. Gen X is a mess. That's that's us. We will have no blaspheming of of Gen X on this particular I mean, show. I, we are I, the best Xer, generation. <laughs> I love us, and yet we are a mess in terms of we're spread out all over the place in our perspectives. Even though we're the smallest, and millennials and uh, Gen Z are are moving along the spectrum. I mean, you just see this politically and ideologically. They're moving. They're much more comfortable with diversity. They expect mm-hmm, it. In fact, mm-hmm. they're not shocked. But I, I think. I mentioned tolerance because I I vaguely remember in the 80s when I was in elementary school, there was a lot of attention played to being tolerant. And I think we're back in that space, like generationally. Book banning is really unpopular, even if you agree that some of the titles are concerning to you. And so it does feel like, and I think this is the like false lull. It does feel like, okay, this woke police, this folk, like, let that go. It's not that important. Yes, we all want to like come together and be kumbaya, but not in my school. <laughs> so there's a little bit of both. And I don't know if there's a winner at this point, Chris. So I probably have two answers to it. First of all, thank you for the work that you do, because I see, I think we're always winning when we have people that are smart, that are fighting back that are creating the systems to fight back, who are running organizations to do it. Without that, we would all lose. 
just to be real with you right now, people listening to this, many of you are participating thing in things that if you were to stop doing them right now, we would all lose. So good for you. Good for you all that are in the fight and doing it. I think progress is always winning, even though when, when we don't see it, it's just usually the degree to which it's winning. And people are, I've been having this conversation with many folks that are disagreeing with me right now. I think the future is always progressive. The future is always progressive. If you look over long periods of time, there are things that we're doing right now and that we can do today that we couldn't do at a certain point in history. And there's a continual line of those things. And maybe they face setbacks, but this is when you know that you're winning, when the backlash comes to your progress. So we have the cycle, the, the backlash to cycles of progress always come, and they come more virulent and more kind of animated when we are winning, right? When we have gone too far. When you just said that a second ago, gone too far, you know what that means? Gone too far means is more people have their rights. More people are being heard. And the last bastion of group hate, like I think the trans population is a good example of there is an effort to make everybody hate this one group because we have bigots in every group. So all even the groups that have won their rights over time are still bigots in some ways toward this one group. So that's why they are the remaining group that you still can use and, and progress is going to be on their side. They are going to become full members of this society. They're going through the same kind of minority ascension that everybody else has gone through in terms of we have all been where they are. And, and they will, I see the future. The future is progressive. The future is they will be full human beings. Look at you being optimistic. It's not optimistic. It's actually, if you study history, that's what the evidence tells us. That's what the evidence tells us, right? Like, you know, we sat in the back of buses. We, you know, families like mine weren't fully legal in Alabama until the year 2000. That's in our lifetime. It was still illegal to be my family in 1999 in Alabama. Still on the books. And look where we are now, right? We're just flagrant with it. And you mentioned, <laughs> you know, you mentioned Gen X. I mean, there's a point in time, I've said this on this show before, there's a point in time in my life where you would read an entire magazine and there wouldn't be a single piece of person of color in it. In my yeah. lifetime, you could pick up yeah. a People magazine and maybe you had Todd Bridges in there or somebody like that. Uh, <laughs> but now you've got like, you know, yeah. you pick up and it's all, that's progress. That's always winning. The thing that that's hard is when progressive people or people that are, are in line for that progress start losing steam or hope because they're facing setbacks. And that's where I think we are right now. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's going to be a little bit more pain before we solve this. And it breaks my heart because as a profession, you mentioned the death of professionalism and expert knowledge. I mean, my dream actually in doing this work is that teachers get their due and we all understand how hard it is, how meaningful it is, and that they have a little bit more prestige and are able to raise their families as well. And I think they're really hurting out there. I mean, we launched an educator's defense fund and we have not raised anywhere near close the amount of money that would be necessary to just well staff a call center for folks who are getting fired or doxxed or afraid they're going to lose their job or their certification or are afraid for their physical safety because there are still a real real threats. We field these death threats to system leaders or educators every week. Um, so that's not stopping. But I do think, you know, on the one hand, we see governors and, and legislators raising teacher pay, you know, which is really like 
the tale of the red shirt, what was that? Red shirt, red cap <laughs> movement mm-hmm. um, a mm-hmm. couple of years ago, which is great news. Red for Ed. Um, yes, there you yeah, go. Red for Ed, <laughs> Ed. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's important, but not if it's packaged with a poison pill that says racism isn't real. We're sort of in the thick of it in that way. But I do, I, I like to, I want to just animate this story of like progress. That's really interesting. I live in Washington, D.C. So I live in a city. I in my lifetime have like gone from being low income, single family raised to like solidly middle class with two school age children. And they go to one of the most progressive ever charter schools in the city of D.C. So like I am a parent of choice, if you want to call me that. I'm probably like personally a little more liberal like that's nobody even uses that term anymore hardly but it is the most progressive school like we had our bathroom fight three years ago the gender neutral bathrooms like whatever and what's fascinating to me though is that the pendulum is going to swing and yet we really have to listen to young people's like experience of the world as it is now young people even in this middle east crisis like Young people need information about what happened. They need multiple perspectives so that they can come to some like meaningful opinion about how to be in the world and how to lead through it. And we're sitting here banning books or saying, no, we're not going to talk about this because it makes you uncomfortable. Like it is, it's ludicrousness. It's insanity. And so I, I think if we're not all doing some part in stopping it, even if it's just having the conversation or showing up at a hearing to say, that is not what I want for my kid, then we're we're missing an opportunity to participate in the democracy. Like, here it is. It's here. I think one of the things, I don't know how you feel about this, but you just mentioned what your family looks like in D.C. And I think that's an invisible family oftentimes. Like when I said earlier that with people of color, oftentimes we gravitate towards the poor or the worst, the worst of the worst or just urban. 50% of our kids are in suburbs now. And many of our families are just like yours and mine, where you are not talking about, we're talking about people that have amassed a little bit of privilege in life, but we are completely voiceless or faceless in the broad juggernaut that is going right on right now with white middle-class families, right? The parental rights movement is really their movement. It's really about them. But in their neighborhoods and right around them are people that have their kids in the same schools who are college educated and reasonably middle class and of color. And they don't have a movement. They don't have representation right now. That group is without representation. I think that's starting to become my kind of my anger right now is because, you know, I have three kids in traditional public schools. It would never cross my mind to actually take the things that I don't like our, about our traditional schools and try and go legislate against other people. My kids don't have to read every book in the library. My kids don't have to be in every immersion program. I do want my kids to have authors of color and authors that look like them. And, you know, I have one high schooler that in three years of high school hasn't had any, has had some elective type uh, lessons with authors of color, but no standard, not part of the standard curriculum. So I'm fighting that already. And here you come saying you want to ban even more books <laughs> and all the books, you know, turn out to be my kids books, the ones we want. Right. But Chris, I want to disrupt a little bit Go ahead. the notion that it's parent against parent, family against parent, family. That's not what's happening. This is a political strategy that is being deployed to keep us separated and to keep us in fear. And yes, there are people who are compelled 
by the invitation to come on in with the crazy. Yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. But I honestly have not met the parent who woke up and said, hmm, I'd like to just ban these books. They've been offered something and they've responded to it. And it's a full architecture underneath. They can find some grievance in the thing that's being presented and they're off to the races because there's so much polarization, fear, misinformation, and legitimate grievance. So I do, I get frustrated with the folks who want to sit in the middle and either dismiss it as crazy or who want to, you know, dismiss valid criticism. No, that's not what we're trying to do here. We actually have to engage on all of the issue because if we care about improving the kind of teaching and learning that young people have access to, then we have to grapple with the small things. So I do think like on the one hand, I hear exactly what you're saying there. We always need movements and we need to mobilize people to like get what they need, to speak up for what they need, to make the demand real. But I just believe that lots of people have been hoodwinked into participating in something that may not even be in their own interest. We think about what this started. We think about coming out of a global pandemic and school closings. All of us had a real grievance. I mean, let's just be for real. We all had a grievance. That could have been a collective moment, but it was leveraged to say, the people over there then took all your stuff. <laughs> you better go mm-hmm. get it. Mm-hmm. And I think like, that's a shame because I do meet people who like want to come together on some stuff. So I hear you. I know you, I know you're the cynical type. It's not really cynical. So this is, I call it realism, like racial realism. <laughs> so this is, this is where I feel like it's important to talk about it in this way. I am not complicit in the war right now in one very important way. I am not calling for the blocking of anybody else's rights, the blocking from anybody else's access. There are literally people who have been sold what Michelle Alexander calls the racial bargain. And the racial bargain is when you get something in return for being racist, right? Like when something's offered to you, like to poor whites, well, you can at least be better than the blacks. And that's a bargain. There's, there'll be some benefits to you, even though you're going to be poor and you're going to be white, you're going to be better than them and you'll get some benefits from it. Now, not everybody has to take that bargain. I mean, Michelle Alexander does a better job than I did of explaining what that bargain looks like. But when you see large numbers of people signing up for the bargain, you know that they're smarter than you are if you're thinking that it's it's all kumbaya. It's really not. They're getting some benefit out of that. And now the bargain, I think, it's being sold the exclusionary version of parental rights, the the, mm-hmm. the antagonistic kind, the divisive kind, is being sold as part of a portfolio of a political package. It has a party. It has leaders. It has a language. It has a worldview. And you either take all of it or you take none of it, meaning... I don't even know much about schools, but I know I'm hearing this woke stuff, this kitty litter and classroom thing and whatnot. And I don't even care if it's right or not. I have to repeat it because it's part of my overall political portfolio, right? I'm not part of that crew. I want white children to have access to everything that white children need access to. My family looks like all of America, and I don't think any of them are unworthy of fully affirming education in the way that their parents want it to happen. So I'm not complicit. No one's making me a bargain on my side of the fence, but someone's making the other side a bargain of you can be fully mainstreamed if you sign on to these beliefs. Teachers are groomers. LGBTQ depiction in any book by itself is obscene. 
right? Just by itself, right? So I don't know what we do though to deliver because I think we're not animated enough and we're probably not animated enough because we don't hate enough. Like hate's a hell of a motivator. <laughs> I mean, Yeah, we do have to figure out how we tell a story that is not a hateful one or a fear one that can win the day. I mean, we, we all watched the Obama campaign do this quite well, not so long ago, but it is really important for us to remember the good parts of our schooling experiences, the good parts of, you know, bringing more diversity into uh, a teaching and learning environment, the good parts of working collaboratively, because that it's going to take that. So right now I am focused on stories of harm, which is a real bummer personally, but we absolutely have to get to the place of what's working well that serves all. And that's the, that is hard. Like, you, I, I know I've watched your show before, you know, anytime we have to have the conversation about differentiation and how hard it is. <laughs> This is that. Yes. <laughs> this is that on steroids. I mean, well, this is a good point that you bring up because what I know about you, my, my first introduction to you before I even knew you was you were this fancy pants person on C-SPAN that was having this very important discussion. And I was like, oh my God, this is a you know knowledgeable person. Not even knowing that one day I would know you, like that I would know you and you would be in my network of, of so I'm very fortunate in that way to have uh, technical people, people who understand the underpinnings of real education. How worried are you about the fact that we're talking all this time about these things, these culture war things, and that means that real pedagogical problems, real problems in education about how we develop and you know teachers and teaching and all that are taking a backseat to this stuff? Well, if you are right that things move into the progressive space along the continuum of time, then I'm not worried about this taking up attention because it's an important marker of our acceptance that everybody gets to go to school and get a good quality education. We're getting over the hump of everybody deserves this. And even where we disagree, where we have real values disagreements, they still get to come to school and we still have to teach them. So I'm not worried. And one of the real roadblocks to getting people engaged is people over worrying about that. So often when I'm out, people are talking about, well, let's just talk about science of reading or let's just, let's just talk about AI and it, it will, this will fix all of that. And one of the things that I believe is that you're not going to get to the science of reading if you don't tamp this down. It's actually getting mm -hmm. in the way. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get to AI solutions for, for differentiation or for making the job easier or more efficient if teachers are constantly being challenged by the, on their professional knowledge. Like, you, you cannot ignore this stuff for us to get to the technical. You actually have to, all of us have to come out and say, whoever shows up gets to come. They get to bring their full selves and we're going to teach them. And that's really what this is about. So I don't think it's an either or. I'm going to take another pitch at it. Mm -hmm. So very specifically, when you see these kind of culture war things going into the territory where they start beating up on SEL and miseducating the public about what social emotional learning for those listening, when you start having groups miseducate new groups of people who aren't even in the discussion yet, miseducate them about what social emotional learning is, what standards and assessments are, what reading programs like Wit and Wisdom, which is scientifically backed to do good work, but now is under attack in certain districts because 
this kind of moron maven syndicate of people have just decided that they're going to add it to the things that they don't know about, but they're going to have an opinion about. That's the technical stuff that I think does real harm. And it took people a long time to figure out that certain reading programs work better than others. And it only takes you a year to come in and turn the public against some of it. Yeah, to undo it. Yeah, I I do think that's a problem. But again, like from our perspective, and maybe I'm I'm in the bubble of it. I we work on I work on these issues every day. What that means is if you want to do the technical work, you have to make sure that these so-called culture wars get answered. They just go together. And that's really hard. I mean, we you, you know this, but we work really hard to put plain language in the mouths of educators so that they can explain these things in ways that don't trigger the backlash. And that's not because we're trying to get them to lie. It's because the language has been co-opted and doesn't allow for us to get the evidence-based practices to young people who really need it. And so I think that's really important. I guess I'm also like, today I'm tired. And I would say, I just need for people to be more courageous about these things. Mm -hmm. We can disagree Mm -hmm. about things. Uh, We cannot let a political strategy undermine our entire sector's ability to deliver what young people deserve. You're spending a lot of time thinking about this every day. And you just said, I'm tired. And you're probably carrying an obviously heavy cognitive load of this every day. Do you have the moments or the days where you feel betrayed by more people not showing up or by there not being more resources to do this work or by more, you just said courageous, like just more people kind of using their voice and standing up to do this work. Do you have the days where you feel a little bit defeated by the number of people showing up for it? All the time. (laughs) (laughs) Did I just describe your everyday? (laughs) All the time. And I also have the days where somebody calls and like provides a really great resource and, you know, makes a way. But just like in anything, there are a lot of people who are, are, are not in this, they're not in this game. Mm -hmm. What's the pitch do we, that we make to people who have resources, who do want to fund things like educational improvement, choice, you know, just the things we already talked about, the, the teacher pipeline, for instance, all of those things feel very tangible and fundable, but this work of kind of creating the enabling political waves to be able to do it seems a little less kind of the ROI doesn't seem to be there as much for some people. What's, what's the language for, investors to invest in this? Oh, that's such a good question. Thank you for that question. Um, and since I was previously in philanthropy, every billionaire can can be spending 35 to 40% of their dollars protecting advocacy, political stuff for their technical solution. And they really should invest that because other people are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> so most of us in K-12 are behind the eight ball because advocacy is not sexy and Because philanthropy is overly focused on metrics and impact, it's harder to measure. But if you're not spending 35% of your dollars protecting your science of reading investment in districts, you're going to lose. And, you know, the political pendulum might swing back. But in the meantime, there are little children trying to learn to read and they don't have any books that represent them in the library anymore. And you spend all your money training people and whatever, and the kids are like, what? Huh? So really, really think about how important that is in this moment. I understand the urge to focus on direct service, but as many, many commentators have said the last year, 
Districts are awash in resources from the federal government coming out of the pandemic. And if you want to do good, help people use those resources more effectively and spend money on this. Also, spend money on communications because you want to protect those efforts to diversify the teacher, the teaching workforce, the educator workforce. So it's going to cost more for us to convince black and brown educators to stay or to enter. And you may want to have a little legal defense fund because black women are catching hell if they are leading a district and trying to implement this stuff. And anybody who took a job as a DEI officer is probably out of a job, not because they are ineffective, but because the politics of the work are just really hard. And even as corporations come forward and try to like save their investments in this area, the public systems have, have just no resources around this. So like, if you're a billionaire, that's the, the thing. If you're not a billionaire and you're just a millionaire, split the difference, but don't ignore this. I love it. Just a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> So I have two questions for you, and I know we're going to wrap soon. So I think one question more around is what are you gearing up for for 2024 in terms of your your fight and your vision for next year? I think on this investment piece, though, before we leave that as a topic, there are people right now that are fighting to preserve the past, and there are people that are trying to make the future. And I think the future makers are your people that are thinking about an inclusive future. Your organization is called Campaign for a Shared Future. But when you mention people who do DEI work or whatnot, that's not a just a discipline. That's really the care tenders, the people who are thinking about how our systems can work equally well for everybody. And that is actually a future making. That's where we want to go as a country. That's who we want to be. We eventually want to be the type of country where we can take in people from everywhere on the planet. And we have the systems in place to make us one people, like one country. So they're under attack. The future makers, the people who want a shared future are the ones that are catching hell right now. They're under attack. And the people that are attacking them are the ones who want to preserve the past. They are the the past preservers. You know, that that's, if you're listening to my show and you're conservative, I'm very sorry, but that is the, actually the ethos of your, it's at least the vibe that y'all are throwing off right now. And maybe, you know, if you disagree with me, you might want to think about that vibe you're throwing it off right now. So I think something has to be done to invest in future making. It can't just be about opening charter schools. It can't be about just like getting a million more teachers in the classrooms. It can't just be about induction for teachers or how we assess kids. That's all part of a bigger picture. We can't be pixelated people. Those are all pixels in a bigger picture. We actually have to be bigger picture seers. We can't just be pixelated. And so often philanthropy and the people that fuel the movements that we are part of are very comfortable with parts of the mission because they see it in discrete parts. They see the pixels. I don't know what we do. And I don't know if you have some secret dust in terms of leadership. You've been on both sides. You've been in philanthropy and you've been on our side, which is by our side, I mean like permanent nonprofit workers. I'm going to unionize us. Philanthropy, <laughs> National Association of Philanthropy Workers is going to be like a thing, Ooh, you know, nonprofit that. industrial complex workers of, the, of America, <laughs> something. Anyways, it's coming. Do you have anything to say to this last piece that I just said before we transition to what you're thinking about for next year? I don't have any brilliant thoughts, but I do think that in the future, we have to solve for inequality in a way that we've never done. And that requires a more global view. So the pixels don't work because there's so much interconnectedness. 
around the way we've like created classes of haves and have nots. So I do, I get what you're saying. I would just agree with it. Mm -hmm. I think that's very helpful. I mean, when you say I don't have anything profound to say, but then you agree with me, I'm like, well, I don't know. That's pretty damn profound. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. My tired friend, my friend who's been fighting the good fight next year is obviously not shaping up to be a easy year. It's, I think, shaping up to be the fight of our lives in some ways. I don't want to be overly dramatic. You tell me if you think we're shaping up for like one of the biggest fights we've ever had or if it just is what it is. It's just another election year. But what are you what are you saying? What are you gearing up for? No, I I think this is um, it's important. And the presidential gives us a frame for whether we want to go backwards or forwards. One of the most promising opportunities, though, is knitting together the various coalitions that we might think about as separate but that are all one. And this is on the parent and family side. So we have been so fortunate to work with parents who want to assert a counter voice to the Moms for Liberty types. And they come in lots of different stripes and sizes and shapes, but they're not connected. And so there's a real coalition to build around folks who don't want other people to tell them what their kids can read or do or engage in. The other thing is that none of us are singular people. So we have lots of educators and teachers who are parents and vice versa, who have expert knowledge to bring coalition together. And so I think in 2024, if we are to succeed to move into the future, we've got to be creating more and more common ground, even if it's just temporary. And I think there's something that resonates around that and that if we can tolerate disagreeing on the edges, then we'll win as a country. Like we'll win for all of us against those folks who are trying to drag us back. Yeah. So that does make me feel a little bit hopeful. If we lose, it won't be long before we're winning again because it will be so painful. And I guess my big fear is that if we lose it, it will be so painful. And there's a lot of pain already. And lasting pain. (laughs) There'll be some of the pains that are going to take a long time to undo. That's right. I thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you for coming on today. I would love for you to tell people how they can find out more about Campaign for Our Shared Future and what they should be watching out for. Yeah. So Campaign for Our Shared Future, it's campaignsharedfuture.org. We we have a bunch of toolkits that actually people love. There's an educator toolkit that like helps you talk about the issue more plainly. We have something called the Movement Playbook, which if in your community you want to pull together a coalition that focuses on school board and also tells you those handy dandy things that you said about what a good school board looks like, which I love, you know, equal opportunity, anybody can grab them down. And then if you're interested in joining our newsletter, go to our website and we try to just keep people informed along the way. And like I said, Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, every single school board seat is up for election. So if you live in Pennsylvania, you definitely should be voting uh, on that first Tuesday in November. But go vote. Um, definitely make your voice heard. Stop thinking of these as down ballot races. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Stop thinking of it that way. Start thinking of these as bottom up democracy races. There like you go. From the bottom up and the close your closest access to participating in the democracy is your school board. Uh, and if you want to run for anything, run for that. Excellent. Well, I appreciate our time with you. I would just say to our listeners, actually do get active, do check out Campaign for Our Shared Future and all of the coalition building potential that we could possibly have across groups. I think our biggest problem next year is going to be one of coordination 
and interdependence and connectivity. And you said the word, I think it was like weaving or something like you said, or I don't know, but it's along those lines of that's where our power is. There is no power in being disconnected. Like all of our power will be in coming together. So you've been listening to another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. We appreciate you as always. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris, Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show. 